Well, good morning. I, just, I think it's my first Sunday morning. I've done a few Sunday evenings, and, um, and, uh, but thank you for not going fishing, everybody, for this weekend, being able to be here. So um, let me start with a question. I'm going to be speaking today about a certain concept and comparing a few people. You do it. Okay. I'll use this for now. Should I continue, Jason? Jason, should I continue just from here? Okay. Um, yeah, what question I want to, want to start with, just to kind of frame an idea here. Would anyone like to suggest, feel free to, to suggest anything, an, an estimate for what percent of the world's population is legally blind? Any thoughts? 30%? That's probably a bit high, huh? All right. Um, well, it turns out 285 million people out of 7.7 .7 billion, billion are legally blind. That's 3.7%, 3.7% legally blind. My maternal grandmother passed away, um, I think about six years ago. I think she would be coming up on her 101st birthday, but um, towards the end of her life, she had lost her hearing and she lost her sight. And she would just sit around her house and at least once every hour would say, hey, Lord, Come get me, I'm ready. She was blind, but she was really always crying out to the Lord. So, uh, but we will be talking about blindness in a few a different or unique ways today from a couple different perspectives. Sounds like that's, that's working there. Okay. Um, and I'd like to contrast two characters. I find I like contrasting characters in the Bible uh, to, make, to make a point. Um, but both are going to be found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. And you can pretty well camp there this morning while, um, while these characters come out of there. Um, to start and just kind of frame the big picture, so to speak, a little bit, um, let's actually start in, in Mark 10 and verse 13. Mark 10, 13, speaking about little children. Mark 10, 13, and I'll read. Then they brought little children to him that he, that's Jesus, of course, might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Familiar passage, right? But it's interesting, children do not have to become adults to be saved, but adults have to become like children. That's, that's a William McDonald quote. I love it. Children do not have to become adults to be saved, but adults have to become like children. Well, so what does this have to do with, with blindness? Let's think of the typical mindset of a young child. They're not, they're not skeptical yet. Uh, they're, not, they're not jaded by the world. They're not, they're not invested in the world. Um, maybe perhaps not overly prideful over anything they've get, that they've gotten into, any accomplishments or pursuits that they're hung up on. They're, they're just, they're, they're simple. Their eyes are open to, when they hear the gospel, it makes sense. They're not skeptical, typically. Um, children can hear it. And, and there's nothing blinding them from seeing the Lord for who He is and understanding just that pure simplicity of the gospel. One of the points I remember Chris Schroeder made here a few weeks ago during the spring conference, um, he said he's, he's heard many times that when People who, who came to Christ at an older age, maybe their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, whenever it was, what would they often tell him? He, he said he heard it several times. I wish I had come to know Christ at an earlier age. I wish I hadn't spent so much time with those damaging effects of the world 
and a worldly lifestyle. They become harder and harder to shake the longer one has lived without Christ. And uh, it's harder to... The Lord takes us and He molds us and we move forward with Him, but there's a lot that often has to be worked out and people see that the effect of the world has uh, certainly done something to their, to their lives. But praise, praise the Lord, He'll take us at any age, right? Um, I'm sure there are many of us who, who came to the Lord after realizing that we had allowed something to get in the way, allowed something to blind us, uh, allowed something to keep us from being able to see Him clearly and see what He wanted to offer us. Um, forgiveness, right, through his own blood on the cross. But now let, let's look at our first character I want to uh, read through this morning. In Mark, Mark 10 and in verse 17, this is the, um, the story of Jesus counseling the rich young ruler. It's actually mentioned in um, Matthew and, Matthew, we're in Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well. Um, and when you read all three, uh, you know, and, and when you study all three, you realize he was a rich young ruler, even though it doesn't come out and say that in the passage we'll be reading, but nevertheless, let's dive in. Um, Mark ten seventeen. So now as he, which is Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher. Notice what he calls him, good teacher. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Then he goes in and reminds him of some commandments. You know, there's a theme to these commandments too, I'll point out in a moment. But verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, the rich man answered and said to him, teacher, and notice how he's dropped the good from good teacher. Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Do you think so? Verse 21, then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. It's important that is in there. Loved him and said, said to him in a loving way, one thing you lack. One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Even find something to relate to where he is at. You will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But the rich man, he was sad at this word. And went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I'm a math teacher, even though I'm off for the summer, but um, I am, as a math teacher, sometimes after giving a, an assessment, a test or a quiz, any kind of assessment, students will come to me afterwards. We have office hours at my school, and they'll, they'll come in. Mr. Owers, oh, is there, I didn't do so well on that, that quiz. Uh, is there anything I can do now to raise my grade? To raise my grade. Is there anything I can do? Can I do some extra credit? Thing. And, and in my, the back of my mind, usually my first thought is, why didn't you come by before the test, kiddo? sound awfully interested in your grade right now. I would have loved to have heard from you earlier and would have been able to help you. Um, but I, I want my students to ask themselves this question, am I actually here to learn the material? And I'm, am I here to build brain cells, to learn math? Or am I just here to get a better grade that, gets, that will eventually get stamped onto my college applications? Bottom line is I'm trying to get to the heart of the matter with the students, and, I, and I'm, I'm asking them, what are you really interested in? What are you, where, where's your heart on this whole thing? And if I can get to that, and I have a few times, it's neat when the student says, you know what, I, I really need to learn this material instead of worrying about my grade. And for you students out there, if you focus on learning, your grade's gonna take care of itself, just as a side note. If you, if you, if you wanna learn, you have the desire to learn, you will do just fine. 
But I bring that up, I think this is kind of what Jesus is doing as he's speaking to the rich young ruler. He's getting the rich young ruler to, to look at his own heart and get to the heart of the matter. Why have I come to Jesus? Am I here for repentance or am I just here to tack on something to what I've already probably inherited? He uses the phrase good teacher. Interesting. It's not a particular, well, it's, uh, there's many good teachers. Uh, Jesus is one of them, but if that's what he calls him, it, it's interesting. Yeah, why, why, does, why does this rich man use that description to get Jesus' attention? It, it may be all he knows at that point about who Jesus is, and maybe that's all he knows to call him. But he follows up with this question, what shall I do? He doesn't say, Lord, what can you do for me? Have mercy on me. No, it's what shall, what shall I do? He wants to do something. Right? We all like to do things. We earn things by doing them. Salvation is not earned, though, as we know. He wants to do something to inherit eternal life. Let me tell you a story. When I was a kid, um, I was growing up overseas, actually, in, in Saudi Arabia, and we couldn't get, there are certain things we just couldn't get. There's, all we had was at the, the local commissary, and uh, we couldn't get a nice little tiny squeezy bottles of syrup. And all that came at the store was these great big, like, it was at least a gallon, maybe two gallon bottles of syrup. And we were having pancakes one Saturday morning, as we often did, and uh, I wanted syrup on my pancakes, so I reached over and was able to skid it across the table. It was full. And I remember my dad saying, hey, you know, let me, can I help you with that, Jeff? It's probably better I pour that for you. He said, no, 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 I want to do it myself. I want to do it. He said, okay, go ahead. And sure enough, um, as I started pouring it, I, I lost control of it, and the syrup starts pouring all over my pancakes, soaks them all the way through over the plate and onto the table. My dad's going, I wanted to help you, but, you know, you wanted to do it yourself, huh? And I did, you know, my, my pride was in there. Um, I wanted to do something to earn the right to say, look at my stack of pancakes with syrup. Um, our, pride, our pride does get in the way. We want to do things ourselves, and that's what the rich young ruler is wanting to do. He wants to find a way to do something to inherit eternal life. I may mention it earlier. It, this man has probably recently inherited money because he's young, but he's not satisfied. He's not desperate, though. He just wants something more than what he already has. And the world today likes to ask that question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Gee, I, I hope I'm going to heaven. I hope I do enough good to get there. We know that's not how it works. Jesus' response, though, he asks a question that many, many like to say was, is Jesus denying his own perfect goodness when he says, why do you call me good? Jesus isn't denying his own perfect goodness. He's really trying to see if the rich young ruler knows who he is speaking to. Uh, another way of thinking about it might be this. This rich man, do you have any idea of how purely and divinely good I really am? Do you know who I am? I am perfectly good. I am holy. But then Jesus proceeds to remind him of several commandments. And these are, these are relational commandments, uh, personal commandments, commandments that involve loving others. And he wants the rich young ruler to, to dwell upon them. Do I really do these? He asks him and reminds him about where he's at with those commandments. What is Jesus doing here as he's asking that? I think in probably in a much more loving way than when I'm trying to get my students to reflect on why they came by after the test or didn't, didn't, uh, where, where their heart is on that. Jesus is trying to get this man to see what his real issue is. Before just presenting the gospel to him, he's trying to drill into the heart. And he's trying to get him to see what, that the real issue is this man's inability to acknowledge his own sin. He doesn't come there asking for forgiveness. And the Lord knows that that's where he needs to start. Right, so, so why doesn't Jesus just immediately tell him 
how to receive eternal life. After all, the man's coming, the rich man's coming right to the right person to, who would give him eternal life. Why doesn't he just tell him directly? The Lord Jesus can see the true motivation, the real agenda, and the true heart of this man. So the question I want to ask is this, even though he's young, does this man, does the rich young ruler come to Jesus like a little child? As we looked at earlier, does he come to Jesus like a little child? The Lord knows he hasn't come to him with that kind of, kind of posture. The rich young ruler is already dependent on something else. He's not desperate. He doesn't really need the Lord with where he's at. He's, he's, not, he's already dependent on his own riches. And importantly, his riches have squashed his desire. Not his opportunity, though, but his desire to put his faith in Christ alone. His riches are in the way, and he's blinded by them. To bring it back to what I want to be talking about today. In verses 21 and 22 of that passage, does Jesus present a different or a customized gospel for the rich young ruler? Is he saying, hey, this is a one-time offer for you, rich man, and I'll, I'll tell you how you can get to heaven? No, he, he, the Lord knows that the man's heart is not ready. So he's saying, let's, let's do first things first here, and he proceeds to have that conversation with him. But the per, a person's heart must be ready to receive the gospel. And this man's heart was blinded by his dependency on his great wealth. Jesus then uses this phrase, one thing you lack, as he continues speaking with him. One thing you lack. Well, what is the one thing that the rich young ruler lacks? I don't, it doesn't seem explicit, that, that Jesus doesn't seem to tell him explicitly what it is, but he begins to give him the, the guidance that will eventually show this man that, that what he lacks is faith, a pure, simple, childlike faith. He knows that the rich young man doesn't have that. He's very careful not to just give him an immediate answer. See, it's, it's true for any of us. Jesus isn't going to let his offer of salvation or his holy presence or his forgiveness and so on. He's not going to let that be shared with this man's riches. He's not gonna let, he doesn't want that to be shared with something that already has a grip on either his heart or our hearts. It's either me or your money, rich man. And that's what he's getting him to realize right there. Choose ye this day. I believe also it's pride that's causing the man to want to do something, uh, just like me trying to pour that syrup. He wants to do something rather than to humbly acknowledge his own sin and then be able to freely receive Christ's forgiveness with a, with a broken and contrite heart. Then he uses th three, three words that are going to come up again as we look at somebody else here uh, as well. And Jesus as well also tells us, he gives us these three words as he presents the gospel. The three words are, go your way, go your way. And proceeds to say, sell, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. What, is, what has Jesus just given him? He's given the man a choice. He's given him a suggestion, but he also says, go your way. He's given him free will and reminded him of it. But this rich young ruler can't, cannot give up his dependency, and he rejects the Lord right, right to his face. He rejects the Lord right there. He goes away still blinded by his riches and his pride, it's no wonder he goes away sad. He's just said no to, to the Lord uh, when he had told him how he could find him. Well, I guess in some ways I can relate to the rich young ruler. I ho hopefully you, you, you can as well if you think about it. He wanted to hold on to his own dependency and then only afterwards asked the Lord to fill in the rest of the desire that he couldn't fulfill. He'd already had a lot established. He says, Lord, can I just have something else? I've already done a lot on my own. I need a little bit of something else. Yeah, I think it's not uncommon for us, even in this life, to, 
to want to hold on to our own desire, our own plans, uh, whether it's money, you know, involving money or our own dreams or pursuits, uh, things involving our children's future, anything. Uh, we want to hold on to those and sometimes only later pray to invite the Lord in to merely do a part after we've tried to otherwise do something entirely by ourselves. Oh, Lord, I've worked on this myself. Would you mind blessing it? Right, would, would you mind now, now that I've done it on my own, can you help me? He doesn't like it that way. I think the Lord wants us to lay everything all out in front of him and say, from the beginning, before I even make these plans, Lord, tell me, tell me where you want me to go. I believe I mentioned earlier, but the rich young ruler didn't, didn't desperately need anything. He didn't have a desperate need. He just wanted more than what he already had. Let me just uh, throw in something here from Matthew 6. You don't need to turn there, but a familiar passage, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon doesn't directly translate to money, but it's, it's, it can be thought of as wealth regarded as an evil influence or false object of worship and devotion, all right? Mammon, money that is worshiped. The Lord wants to receive the glory for what He does in our lives. He wants us to start with Him. Now, after Jesus speaks to the rich young ruler, and He tells His disciples of the danger of riches and speaks to them a little bit about that, it says in verse 26 in Mark 10, if you want to look ahead there, verse 26 now, and they, referring to His disciples, this is how His disciples respond to what Jesus was talking about, and they were greatly astonished, saying to them and themselves, well, who then can be saved? They're just blown away like, oh, Lord, who then can be saved? How does this work? Well, we just looked at a man who was blinded by his riches, who couldn't put his, his faith in Christ because his heart was in love with something else. What I'd like to do now is look at another blind person, someone who comes to Jesus really with a completely different approach, a different heart, a different posture than that of the rich young ruler. But let me give an illustration for, first from my own life, probably around the same time or same age as when I uh, poured that syrup all by myself. Um, I was living overseas in Saudi Arabia, and a little ways into the school year, uh, my teacher brought in um, a new student to us uh, who was blind. And I, I remember first looking at her going, something looks different about this girl. And our teacher proceeds to say, this, this, this young lady is blind. Her name was Shannon Dillon. And uh, she needed help with everything. And our teacher kind of explained how we would need to help her out. And she needed help going, uh, you know, walking around the classroom. We had to make sure nothing was going to trip her even going down to the drinking fountain. I remember one really important thing she needed help with was getting to the bus after school. And the teacher would put us in rotations and in pairs to be able to take her, to be able to find the right bus, look for the right number, and get her on the bus. And our teacher was, was pretty strict about it. And she would say, you know, hey, tell her when the steps are coming and, and make sure to lead her away from the crowds and don't let people get in her way. It's, it was important. We, it, it, was, it was a good experience for us as kindergarten staff to help her out like that. Well, it turns out after... After 40 years go by, I had a neat opportunity just, it was within the past year, it was in November, to go back to that town I had grown up in in Saudi Arabia. I was given an opportunity by the school that I work at to go there to a, uh, basically a recruiting fair. It was a, it was a boarding school fair to help recruit those Saudi Aramco students um, uh, whose families are expatriates that live over there but otherwise live in the U.S. and see if uh, I could get any students to come and, and go to the school where I teach. And so it was a neat opportunity to go back after all those years. But I, I tell you, your, your perspective is sure very, very different after 40 years. So when I left there, I was only in fifth grade, but in going back um, and having a chance to walk around there, it was really, really neat, very surreal. I couldn't believe I was there walking right past the kindergarten room thinking about this blind girl we had 
in, in, in class and, and, you know, on the steps to the library and, and the, the sidewalk out to the bus. And I started thinking a lot about that situation now after, you know, growing up uh, and, and not being that age anymore. But I started asking myself questions, you know, like, what, what did she see during kindergarten that the rest of us naive six-year-olds didn't see? What did she learn in kindergarten that the rest of us didn't? Because she was blind. What, how, how well did she listen because she couldn't see the teacher? What else did she learn how to do that year? She learned how to trust a whole lot more so than the rest of us six-year-olds because she was physically blind. Yeah, I wondered if she picked up certain things quicker than the rest of us who were not blind. I do know this, she, she listened a whole lot better than the rest of us uh, because uh, she had to, right, a whole lot more. So while I was learning how to make my numbers and letters and all sorts of other things in kindergarten, she was learning how to trust. She was learning how to put her faith in fellow six-year-olds that were walking her to the bus, how to keep her head on straight when that bus wasn't there or when she was, you know, stuck somewhere. She learned a lot more in kindergarten than I did, I, I have no doubt. But on that note, uh, let's now look at another character. This is blind Bartimaeus. And uh, if we go to Mark 10, 46 now. And so the, uh, Jesus and his disciples are still together. Verse 46 says, Now they came to Jericho. As he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, crying it out. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he, blind Bartimaeus, he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still. He's got Jesus' attention at this point. Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. See, Jesus has heard and understood something very, very different from blind Bartimaeus than what he heard from the rich young ruler, hasn't he? Jesus has seen a completely different heart in blind Bartimaeus just by what he's asking, just by what he's calling him, Jesus, son of David. And finishing in, with that, where I was in verse 49, uh, then they, and most like this is disciples again, uh, they called the blind man, saying to him, be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you, come here, blind Bart, and throwing aside his garment, I like how that's put in there, and throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Wow, what a question. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus is able to ask him a completely different question than what he had asked the rich young ruler, isn't he? Jesus never got to that point where he could ask him that. Never got to the point where he could ask the rich young ruler, what do you want me to do for you? Here's our question today. Can he ask this of you or me right now? What do you want me to do for you? If Jesus was physically in our midst right now, right here, would he be asking us that question? What do you want me to do for you, Claremont Bible Chapel? Is he saying, what do you want me to do for your VBS program? What do you want me to do for your camps this summer? How can I bless you? Is he asking us, what do you want me to do for next year's spring conference? Is our heart in that right place where Jesus is saying, hey, what do you want me to do for you? I think it's important to ask, to, to ask ourselves, are we desperate for his help? Are we desperate for the Lord's help such that we lay aside our own agenda, just like Bartimaeus laid aside his garment with how we approach ministry as we serve here? And anything we do here, are we, are we desperate for his help? Are we really leaning on him? Or are we going through a routine that we know has always worked? Blind Bartimaeus had a desperate need, and he was aware of it. He was aware of that need. He was unashamed to ask for help just where he was in his life, a beggar, 
have mercy on me. Or that's what the Lord wanted to hear. He had, and he had, he had nothing or no one else to depend upon but the Lord right then and there. The rich young ruler, by contrast, he wasn't desperate. He wasn't needy like Bartimaeus. He, was a, he, he wasn't a beggar asking for mercy. He just wanted something else and unaware of his sin at the time. So Bartimaeus is aware of who he's really speaking to. Remember, the rich young ruler, good teacher, probably didn't know exactly who he was really speaking to there. But Bartimaeus saying, Jesus, son of David. He knows historically who he is, that he's the Messiah that has been promised to come. Jesus is able to ask what he's able to do for Bartimaeus because he sees Bartimaeus' broken and contrite and willing heart. He knows right where he's at. The faith, and just as important, I think Bartimaeus has the faith to receive what Jesus wanted to give him. Blind Bartimaeus was only merely physically blinded. He was only physically blinded. Otherwise, he could see just fine. Question for all of us to consider, and we, even though we know the right answer to this, it still, is hard, it still is worth dwelling upon, I think. Here's the question. Would we rather be spiritually blinded or only physically blinded? Would you rather be spiritually blinded or only physically blinded? I think I was in the middle of verse 51 there in, in the, the passage on blind Bartimaeus. Finishing that, it says, The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Tells him what he wants, and he tells him very respectfully. Rabboni, by the way, means my master or great one. Very, very reverent of the Lord. All right, on, on the blindness note, you've heard of Helen Keller, I would presume? Helen Keller. She's, she was both deaf and blind. She's known as a deaf-blind, one word. She was a deaf-blind who... She lived about, uh, over the last hundred years or so, uh, passed away in 1968. And uh, at some point, Helen Keller was bluntly asked, isn't it terrible to be blind? And her response was this, it's better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. It's terrific, I think, that to have two good eyes and see nothing. We'll read a little bit about her. As a child, Helen Keller had been told that Mother Nature had made the sky trees, water, and all living creatures. However, she grew older, she inquired about God and was baffled. She knew there was something more. Her friends tried to tell her that God was the creator and that he was everywhere and that he, that he knew all the needs and joys and sorrows of every human life and that nothing happened without his foreknowledge and providence. Helen Keller was drawn irresistibly to such a glorious, lovable being and longed to really understand something about him. One day, Helen Keller asked her teacher, anybody remember her teacher's name, Helen Keller's teacher? Annie, Annie Sullivan. Yeah, very good. Yep. Asked her teacher, Annie Sullivan, questions about God and Jesus. Miss Sullivan did not feel she could adequately answer these questions, so she took Helen to see Phillips Brooks. Are you related to your family, John, Phillips Brooks? Uh, anyway, the, the gifted preacher and rector at Trinity Church in Boston. Annie Sullivan felt that if anyone could answer Helen's questions in a simple and beautiful way, Bishop Brooks could. Bishop Brooks understood Helen. He put her on his knee and told her in the simplest way that God loved her and every one of his children. He made him seem so real that Helen eventually said, oh, yes, I know him. I had just forgotten his name. So she knew innately there was a God, there was a creator. I had just forgotten his name. Helen Keller's faith especially at a young age, was strong because she was blind. Her faith was strong because she was blind. Verse 52, wrapping up the story of, of blind Bart in, uh, in, in, in Mark here, Mark 10, 52. 
listen to these three words that come up again, just as he has said to the rich man. Then Jesus said to him, go your way. He had said that to the rich young ruler, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. That was the way that blind Bartimaeus, when he followed Jesus on the road. The rich young ruler chose to stay, to stay, excuse me, excuse me, stay spiritually blinded and dependent on his riches. He couldn't give them up. On the other hand, blind Bartimaeus chose to follow Christ and then was blind no more, neither physically nor spiritually. He got a two-for-one from the Lord right there, not blind physically or spiritually. What a deal. Earlier, I had said 3.7% of the world is legally blind, but it kind of depends on how we look at it, right? No pun intended, on how we look at it. How many in this world, though, are really blind? How many, are, how many are blind to their own sin, or blinded by their riches, blinded by their pride, their selfish pursuits, whatever? Billions. Billions, I believe, right? I think we'd all agree this world is full of blind people, spiritually blind people, and we need to be praying that we are not as well. It might be believers. We need to be praying that we're not blinded by anything from the world. Just because we're believers doesn't mean we always see everything perfectly clearly. Remember the passage we looked at before the rich young ruler or blind Bartimaeus to uh, kind of start things off back in Mark 10, 14, Jesus said to them, let the little children come to me. Let the little children come to me. Why does Jesus say, let the little children come to me? I mentioned it earlier, but I just want to say it again. Children do not have to become adults to be saved, but adults have to become like children. Thank you, William McDonald. Um, as we become adults, though, as we go through life, do, do we all have trouble with things in this life that can blind us from following Jesus wholeheartedly? Do we get tugged by the world? Of course we do. Hopefully, though, these things are revealed to us, though, as we submit to Him, as we daily go to Him. Lord, show me Your will and Your way. But sometimes I think in, in thinking about others, we'll get, we'll get frustrated when we see others continuing to either reject Christ or continuing to struggle spiritually in, in, in ways. As the world continues to, to tug and, and, and uh, you know, put stumbling blocks in front of others, even ourselves. But do you, have you ever been through this? Do you have someone in your life who you've prayed for and prayed for and prayed for for years for their salvation? You know, maybe it's, maybe it's relatives. Maybe it's friends that you've known for years. You've prayed for them for years, but we continue to be frustrated that they choose to remain lost, right? Oh, why won't this person come to the Lord? I've prayed for them for years. The question, though, to consider, I think, if you pray and pray for their salvation, do we, do we pray, though, for others in such a way that their hearts might eventually be prepared for their eyes to be opened to what the Lord is offering them, to be able to hear the gospel, to understand that they have a need, a desperate need like blind Bartimaeus had, to receive the Lord Jesus and His forgiveness. Do you pray that their eyes will be opened? I know I don't always do that. That's a challenge for myself as well. Even within our own church body, we, we hear of needs uh, amongst, amongst our, you know, our brethren of, of people struggling. Now, perhaps it's with nagging sins. Perhaps it's with you know, addictions or repetitive bad decisions. could be anything. Even within our own assemblies, our own church body, do we pray that these people that we see could be made aware of what might be blinding them. Lord, open their eyes. Show them where they're at, please. Within our own assembly, let's, let's be praying that when we see others struggling, we pray for them, that the Lord would, would remove any blinders from their eyes. Are we praying that the Lord would open the eyes of their heart? You know, it's sure easy for many of us, maybe, maybe I just need to speak for myself on this, but it's easy for, for many of us to, 
to judge someone when we can see what is blinding someone from seeing what Christ is offering them. It's easy to say, oh man, they struggle with that. I don't know why they continue wrestling with that sin. They need to just give it up. Well, they might not see it. They just might not be aware of where their struggle is and what, what they need to give to the Lord. But Jesus knows, just like He did with the rich young ruler, what needs to be done first. He's a first things first God, and He needs to see things moved out of the way. The heart must be ready to receive. And that's when we really see the power of the Holy Spirit sweep in and do what only it can do to really change someone's heart. The Lord is a heart surgeon, uh, the best kind you can find. Praise God that the Lord Jesus looks only at the heart, all right? And that's really what He ultimately wants from us. He wants our heart. It's true for any of us. Whether we're saved or not, He wants our heart. A final illustration I'd like to share before, before kind of giving another story involving Paul, but illustration just to kind of, I think, bring this home. On a few different occasions with my school at the beginning of the year, um, as school is getting started, we've done these retreats, um, and we've gone to a, a ropes course, and there's one up in Big Bear, and um, a ropes course is where, you know, you, you, you have a harness on, and you go through various activities that teach you how to trust, how to, how to trust in the harness that's holding you, and to listen to a leader who's guiding you through something that's very difficult, and you're way up above the ground often. And so um, I've had the chance to, to, to do these and participate in, participate in them with some students. And um, it's really kind of fun. It's terrifying, but it's really, it, it, you learn a lot by doing this. And one of, the, one of the activities that we did was that they had this, a great big tall, probably a, about a 20-foot tall telephone pole, probably close to how, how tall this, this ceiling is here. And uh, there's pegs on the telephone pole that you can climb up. And then at the top, there's just a platform that's maybe about the size of a Frisbee. And you have to get yourself up on Now, you have a harness on that you're trusting in. Um, and then the, someone's kind of guiding you through it. But it's hard to get up on top of that telephone pole, stand there. And then what you have to do is lurch out about 8 feet away, 8 to 10 feet away to this uh, kind of dangling trapeze thing and jump out at it. Um, and if you grab it, then, you know, you take that on the way down. And if you miss, the harness still has you and you're lowered down to the ground. And so st some students did it. And one, once they had had all the chance, I said, well, I'd like to try this as well. And... Um, it was terrifying. It's hard being 20 feet above the ground. It's a whole lot harder than it looks when you're up on the ground just cheering for someone who's up there. And so I did it, uh, you know, just the, the regular way. But then the, the leader uh, said, okay, now that you've all tried this, who'd like to try it blindfolded? And I remember thinking, no way. I'm not going to try this blindfolded. It was scary enough doing it when I could, when I could see what I was doing. When a couple students did it, and one after the other, two or three or four of them started doing that, and, and I was noticing this doesn't seem to be as hard for them as what I thought it would be. And I said, I've got to give this a try. So I said, give me the blindfold and harness me up. I want to try it. And so um, after I was led to the, to the telephone pole and climbed up it with the pegs and got up on the top, once I got up there, I realized I'm not nearly as frightened as I was when I actually could see. I got up there. I was very, very aware of the harness that was holding me up and lurched out and grabbed the, the trapeze thing and, and came down to the ground. As I took off my bandana, I said, I can't believe how easy that was. It was really remarkably easy. And uh, I believe I did it one more, again one more time just to convince myself that it, it, wasn't, it was so much easier than, uh, than when I was able to do it when I could see. And it hit me really like between the eyes. We walk by faith and not by sight. And that's really what it showed me. Um, and even though I knew that, the fact that it was, it's so much easier to walk by faith, when your eyes are closed to the world, when I'm up on top of a telephone pole, I'm, not, I'm literally not looking down at the world. I'm not letting the world influence me while I'm taking a step of faith. And boy, did I learn a lot that day. It just drove home that point. It was just incredible. So 
If you have the chance to do that, go give it a shot. But go blindfolded because it's a lot easier. Um, it, it, it's, it's no wonder that blind Bartimaeus knew exactly who Jesus was when he came by. He was blind. He could see Jesus just fine. I mentioned my friend from kindergarten earlier, Shannon Dillon. Um, a question to, to consider. Would my kindergarten teacher have allowed for another blind student to be able to be a guide for Shannon as she went to catch her bus at the end of the day? Okay, you two go down to together. You're, bo you're both blind. You'll, you'll find it. Heavens no. You can't let the blind lead the blind. What does Jesus say about this idea, though? What does Jesus say about the spiritual sight of the Pharisees? You don't need to turn there, but Matthew 23, I'll just kind of give some phrases here that come up in that passage. Woe to you, blind guides. You blind fools, you blind men, you blind guides. All right, Matthew 23, when you lean on your own strength, your own pride, your own religion, you're blind. You're blind spiritually. Religion and self-reliance. That was a term that Steve Price used too, and he talked about it extensively, if I remember, uh, self-reliance. Self-reliance is equivalent to spiritual blindness, says the Lord. Self-reliance is spiritual blindness. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. You know how that goes. Do not rely on ourselves. We, we can't. Um, in Acts 26, you can turn there if you'd like. I just want to kind of finish with an encouraging story where the Lord is speaking to, to Paul. But Paul in this passage in Acts 26, he's, he's recounting basically his testimony of how the Lord um, spoke to him and got his attention. Speaking to King Agrippa, Paul's recounting his conversion. And he's, as we dive in here about verse 16, um, Paul is saying what Jesus said to him when he was blinded on the road to Damascus. So Acts 26, starting verse 16, but rise and stand on your feet. Again, those are the Lord's words. Rise and stand on your feet, Paul, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, and here it comes, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's beautiful. I think it really drives it home. And, and what the Lord asked of Paul is exactly what he asks of us as well, to open the eyes of the blind. It starts with prayer. It starts with knowing that the Lord's going to do it. We do walk by faith and not by sight. I think we better just close in prayer here. And uh, here we go. Oh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and for the contrast it can show between trusting you and trusting in ourselves. Your, your word opens our eyes. Your Holy Spirit opens our eyes and gives us clarity and discernment. Oh, we thank you for that, Lord. It's, he's our helper. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. Your son gives us peace, he gives us life, he gives us salvation. Even as we broke bread and drank of the cup this morning, we're reminded of the tremendous sacrifice that your son gave, and he continues to be our helper, he continues to work in our lives. Oh, we pray for this assembly, Lord. May we all see him clearly. May we serve knowing exactly what you've led us to do. May we do it in your power and your strength. And we thank you for all this in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.